and welcome into another episode of Popcorn for Breakfast. This is our movie review episode. With me as always, and showing off the PFB branded t-shirt there, shameless plug, your co-host, Kirk. Hello, hello. And I am your other co-host, Cam, and like I said right at the outset, this is our movie review episode, so we are going to be diving deep into a piece of cinema. And this week's selection was the latest film from Apple TV+. Plus. Well, I actually don't know that it's the latest from them. I don't pay close enough attention to what they've got coming out week over week. But it's the latest film from Joel Cohen. I know that. Uh, of the artists formerly known as the Cohen Brothers, this was the first <laughs> film that uh, he has directed solo without his brother Ethan. And uh, we'll be analyzing it today. The film is called The Tragedy of Macbeth. And yes... That is the Shakespearean classic. This is a film adaptation. Uh, it's been adapted to film multiple, multiple times. But Kirk, I believe you are on synopsis for us. So whenever you are ready to chat about the tragedy of Macbeth, yes. feel free to break a leg, as they say. In oh, I like what you did there. And in honor of that, I think we shall only speak in heightened language nope. for the rest of this <laughs> podcast. So if you are bewildered by heightened language of the past, we encourage thou to stick with us because we're actually not going to do that. I'm so sorry. I stand no chance. I'm dead in the water. (laughs) I will say that I have done a a couple of, uh, a couple of Shakespearean productions, one of which I was in what's called an unrehearsed Shakespeare um, performance. That was Macbeth. And maybe I can talk about that a little bit later. The synopsis of Macbeth. Everyone knows this kind of the idea that Macbeth is this scary thing that you shouldn't say inside of a theater. Otherwise, you have to, you're cursed, and otherwise, you have to undo the curse. They know that it's uh, pretty gory. They know that it's um, it's a big deal. It's one of the big ones. So, what is it really? They call this the Scottish play. Macbeth is a play about a general who is given a deal basically, through witchcraft, a prophecy vision, if you will, that he will become the king of Scotland. Through his twisted vision, he manifests it, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, and thereby destroys everyone in in his path, including himself. And that, at its core, is Macbeth. Short and sweet, Kirk. I love it. I think that that's good to know because I'll be honest with you, I am not up on my Shakespeare. I find it fascinating that in the public education system in this country, we really do not do a lot of Shakespeare. Like, I think we did Romeo and Juliet and Julius Caesar, and that was it. Um, it's kind of surprising to me. But um, I, I had I, I knew the general story of the tragedy of Macbeth. I didn't. I knew you know, some names, some places, the idea of what the character is and, and, and all of those things. But this is my first hands-on experience with it. And I know it's been adapted to film a few times, once by Roman Polanski. I know there was one by Orson Welles where he starred as Macbeth. Uh, Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard starred in one back in 2015 that I never got a chance to see. So this, mm-hmm. is, uh, this was my maiden voyage with Macbeth. And an interesting one with a, with a flair for the artistic um, as the Coens and in this case the Cohen usually do. So 
let's let's get into it, Kirk. Let's let's dissect the tragedy of Macbeth. And of course, if you don't know the story, um, which is totally fine, don't feel guilty about that because I didn't really know the story that well. Um, there will be spoilers, so uh, be prepared for that as always. But Kirk, this movie has some storied historic roles and some big name actors. Kirk, I want to know who you're giving your Oscar to. Yes, I mean. Can you can you put both of us back up here for a second? If you're watching this video on YouTube, I just want you to see Cameron's face for this next part because the Oscar goes <laughs> to. He already knows. He's already figured it out. He wants me to say it. Say it, Francis McDormand. Yes, Kirk. I have trolled Francis McDormand so hard over the past year and a half, two years of this podcast. It's true, and this is the very first time that I could give her any accolades. Wow. Wow. Kirk, you're growing as a person and I love to see it. I love to see it. Next up, Timothy Chalamet on the, on the Kirk redemption tour here, but Hey, this is good. This is, this is good. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about Francis. Francis McDormand is single handedly, um, mastering the language above anyone else because there there are rules to the Shakespearean language. You can't just pick it up and read it. You have to perform it. And you can't just perform it in action with your body. You also have to connect it to your tongue and then make both of those speak and also your mind and your heart. Shakespeare is a full body workout. If, if Shakespeare was an exercise, it'd be the Peloton, ladies and gentlemen. It's that simple because... It connects everything. It connects everything. What Francis McDormand knows is this language. From beat one, she is with it. She doesn't misstep at any point. I was waiting for it because I hate her, um, or I hate every performance of hers previous to this, I should say. <laughs> Don't pull any punches, Kirk. <laughs> I've just, I've just, I mean, not a fan. Not a fan at all. But this this is what I want to see for her future. I want her to team up with Kenneth Brenner and I want her and him to go uh, just crazy and do the rest of the Shakespearean catalog because she understands this on such a level that you, you can learn, but there's something about when someone just naturally um, it's an, it's an X factor and she has it. it. It's that simple. You can't earn it. You can get close but she knows this language and it made her performance stand out so much more than any other person on the screen because of that. Not a beat was missed. Not a word was fumbled. Not a single rhythm was glossed over. She nailed it. Congratulations, Francis McDormand. I love it. And I think it's a, it's a good call out Kirk, because I think one of the things that has been, maybe a detriment to you and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but she has been typecast for the better part of the last decade in, in yes. most of the role. She plays one type of role. And so you watch the performance and you go, you know, is this any more spectacular than any of these other, you know, three billboards, nomad land, you know, and on and on and on all of these very similar performances. But this was the first time in a long time that we've really seen her do something out of, out of that wheelhouse. And I think that she probably jumped at the chance to first of all, work with Joel Cohen, but also to take on this role, which she has actually played Lady Macbeth before in a stage production. So this was not her first rodeo, but I think this was a good, a good showing for her. And, and, you know, I am a fan of her work, but this was, this was different and this was dynamic in, in every possible way. So, um, 
Good choice, Kirk. I like the pick. My pick, I'm going with Denzel. I'm going with Denzel Washington. Uh, uh, Macbeth himself. What I love that Denzel, and this is something he's been doing for such a long time, he is so easily... He, he can so easily tap into that mania that that like you can't tell if he's on if he's on the right side of his brain or if he is you know possessed by some other evil thoughts going on in his head which made him the perfect candidate for the tragedy Macbeth in fact the first performance that comes to my mind whenever I watch this movie hilariously for him is training day that like that it, it's a similar character a guy who is just really kind of walking the tightrope between sanity and insanity and and you know balancing his ambitions and and glory and his his moral fabric and all these very complicated things all the things that make Macbeth such a incredible character and I felt like in the moments where Denzel was alone with his his thoughts in this movie were when he really just I mean, went for it. I, I loved those scenes where he's having, you know, the inner dialogue, but we, of course, we're hearing it. You know, he's talking to himself and, and saying all the different things that are happening and kind of putting the pieces together and he's seeing the witches, but it's actually just a crow. You know, it's like all of these different things are going on. And Denzel was just fearless. He was, he was in his best possible form. I just really thought he was excellent. And, um, you know, for Denzel, he's never played Macbeth before. He has been in other Shakespearean performances, but this is a this is a really tough role with a lot to manage. And I think it's even t- tougher in the medium of film than it is in a stage show because there's a lot more going on that you have to focus on on a stage show. Um, and Kirk, I'm not an actor or or a director, but I'll so I'll defer to you if I'm just totally wrong here. But I think the two dimensional nature of a stage show makes it, you know, the idea that the audience is sitting out in front of you and you kind of control the way that things are played to the audience makes it different than um, playing to a camera and playing, you know, in this case on a sound stage that they filmed all this uh, performance on and it makes it a little bit more difficult to sort of deliver lines and to, to, to block your scenes and, and to do all the things that you need to do to make it an effective performance. Um and I thought Denzel was all over it. He just seemed totally in control in his own element. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, you could tell that the performance was sort of flowing out of him, which is what you want it to feel like. You want to feel like the person has transcended the, and, and Denzel's a guy we know very well, right? We've seen him probably more in interviews at this point than we have in film. And so it's 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 hard for him to separate himself from the character, but he did it so well here. It, it really felt like, he was being ta- he was embodied by by Macbeth and, and just really um, delivered and and I expect him to to receive many uh, critical accolades for this performance and and potentially some award um, nominations and, and wins for him here. I love that you called out about um, the performance space. Uh, of course, this was performed uh, way back when in the Globe Theatre uh, over in England, where uh, that that stage is almost like a thrust stage, if you will. Um, so everyone's mostly used to a proscenium stage where you have a big square, people perform on it, you watch from one end. A thrust stage is there's per- you can have people on three sides. Um, so if you can get like right up in the plane of the of the 
actors. That's the that's the thrust stage. You have theater in the round, which means the actors are in one circle and you are sitting all the way around. And then even tennis court style. And honestly, um, which exactly what you think if you're looking back and forth, you'd you'd actually be looking at the other audience and you'd be on either side. What we see in this cinematography here. I feel is all of that. There are times when we yeah. have long hallways and we're just watching them go, 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 go. And then we're watching the, the side of that hallway at times. And he's going back and forth. And we have uh, where we're right there with him. We see every angle of this um, and no better way to showcase the depth of Mr. Washington than that, because from any angle he's on, he's ready. So great choice. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Really, really powerful performances from both of our leads who got recognized here. But let's talk about the supporting cast because there are some big roles and some, uh, you know, to date unsung actors, you know, some people who really are still making their way up the ladder of, of fame and, and fortune. And uh, let's see who we pick out of that group for our scene stealers. Kirk, you have the floor. Thank you. Thank you. This one was an easy pick for me. Actually, both of these came really easy for me as, as I watched the first like 10 minutes, I was like, that's one of my picks as long as they continue to be great. And that's one of my picks. So Francis out the gate, I mean, mesmerized by her. My scene stealer goes to the actor who played Banquo, which was an actor by the name of Bertie Carvel. I don't, I can't put it all to words, but his comfortability in not only this character, but behind in sorry, in front of the camera <laughs> that it just, you knew exactly who this character was, which you need that you need that in a Shakespearean play because it's already distant for us because this language, we're trying to follow every word. We're trying to catch up with the rhythm. We're trying to find our way into the rhythm to go on this roller coaster of the story. Because if you can't lock in at least be in sync with the the mode of the language, then you, you're going to get lost. You have to be focused. You have to be watching because every word counts. No, no, no word was dropped by Birdie as Banquo. Um, we, we see his full scope of this rational right-hand man um, all the way through to when he meets the demise by Macbeth's paranoia, uh, when Macbeth orders uh, his, his right-hand man to be killed. Um, it's absolutely magnificent. I, I kept looking at him like I must know him from something, and I don't think I really do. There, there's not a lot of credits um, on his on his uh, list here. Um, but there's, there's some voice acting in star Wars a couple of times. Um, Oh, it looks like he was actually in uh, the 2012 Les Mis as a character, but none, none, nothing at the forefront. Dr. Who, of course, because he's British, there's all these <laughs> things that I'm hoping that he gets some recognition from this, from this film, because man, it really did. I just connected with it. I can't really go into much more detail than that. I really just connected with it. He had it down and Bertie Carvel, can we get you some sort of award, please? Maybe, maybe Kirk. And, and to your point about like, sometimes you just connect with a character. Sometimes it just be like that, Kirk. Sometimes it'd be <laughs> like that, you know, and that's, that's okay too. But yeah, I thought he was great as Banquo uh, for my scene stealer. I'm going with a guy that I think is, quickly rising up the ladder and that's Corey Hawkins. He played McDuff. Uh, most recently saw him in, in the Heights as uh, Benny, 
Benny on the dispatch. Um, but Corey Hawkins plays McDuff, and I think McDuff is among the hardest roles in this whole show because he has to build enough conflict over very short amounts of dialogue and screen time to make the final showdown with Macbeth at Dunsinane epic. And and Corey Hawkins did a great job of that. I mean, he gets introduced in a pretty funny scene uh, where he's, you know, they're at the castle uh, Macbeth, you know, when the king is there and it's right before Macbeth does the, the betrayal of the king and Macduff is just walking down the halls and they're talking about something totally insignificant, but it sort of builds him as a character that you feel comfortable with. And Corey Hawkins has, that's one of his great skills as an actor is to be, he has this charisma and it's, and it's not charisma in the traditional sense. It's just something that's sort of, is part of his essence. You immediately feel like you understand him. He has the ability to quickly um, get across his his character his character's sort of modes and and reasons for doing things. I, it's it's sort of an unspoken thing, but he really has a gift for it. And so that whenever you know, whenever you're sort of, I don't know that you're ever team Macbeth, but there's this flip that happens where it quickly becomes clear that Macbeth is sort of the antagonist of this whole thing, and Macduff then becomes the shining hero to come in and save the day. Um, but his performance and and the way that he's able to do that in such a short amount of time and dialogue just really is a testament to how he does it. Whenever he comes in at the end to fight Macbeth, you're like, Macduff, let's go, man. And that's because Corey Hawkins did a really great job performing this character. Um, and I think Corey Hawkins has, has a really, really bright future ahead of him. He's been in a ton of stuff, but he hasn't really had his big, huge break yet. And I think that it's imminent. I think it's very imminent for Mr. Hawkins, because I thought this was another great feather in his cap. He is. He really does a good job. Yes. All right. Let's get into the production. Oh, man. I can't wait to talk about this. This is this movie had a very um, interesting and, and artful, creative approach that I'm sure will make an appearance in our Showstoppers. But, Kirk, you are up first on Showstopper. I wonder if this is cheating, um, but my Showstopper goes to specifically the choice to make the witches combined into one character. Mm-hmm. Um, there's supposed to be three witches. If you have subtitles, like you should, when you watch a movie at home, you see that this says witch number one, witch number two, witch number three, as Denzel is approaching, as Macbeth and Banquo are approaching, stumble upon these three witches who have come to prophesy over him that he will become the king one day. This eerie um uh, contortionist uh the actress is played by a Catherine hunter who has been in the play before um on stage but this contortionist level creepiness and just ragged uh (laughs) decrepit uh dirty uh just angly like there's lots of angles to her right like the choice to make all those three witches one was brilliant. We still have three witches. We still see three witches, but we see that there is one master over these three and that they all, they all bow to one and they're all played by the same actor. So, which is Catherine Hunter again, I I just can't, imagine being in the production room and maybe there's a maybe there was a production out there where they did this um and bravo to whoever originally thought of this but to see this on screen creates a whole nother level of difficulty because 
you could have easily, if you wanted to do that, you could have easily had, you know, CGI'd all three in every time you saw them. But no, you saw slightly different variations of the three witches. And I'm not talking like Ed, Ed, Nettie or the hyenas, you you know, (laughs) I'm talking very small changes. Like one stands a little bit taller than the other. One is the leader is the most disgusting one uh but clearly has all the power uh and the other one is just kind of there the way that they shaped this to be so horrifying versus uh a caricature versus you know the crazy white hair standing up uh and then we get to that line which some people don't know double double toil and bubble comes from Macbeth. We see it extrapolated across so many other movies. I think there's a Mary-Kate Nashley movie uh, that, that was out in the 90s called Double Double Toil and Trouble, Toil and Bubble. I, I just can't, I can't get over that choice to have the witches that way. And I, I could watch this over and over again, just waiting for those scenes, um, just like drooling almost like, oh my gosh, it was so smart. I wish I was that clever. And maybe one day, I'll have a clever idea like that. Yeah, it's great. It's a great call out. Um, and, and mine is perhaps just a broader sort of version that that's, that's a testament to mine as well, which is like the, my showstopper really is the dreamscape esque environment that Joel Cohen and the production design team created for this film. So to go, you know, pull back the curtain on the production, this, whole movie was filmed on sound stages, which is not usually something that's done today. So everything you saw in the movie was, you know, created by human hands. It was, it was like a stage show, you know, you have set design and all these different things. And, uh, the costumes were made mostly in black and white so that when the film was shot in grayscale, the costumes were vibrant yet still in that like grayscale sepia type of, tone you know the the production designer talked about painting shadows onto the set so that it made it look even more like you're on this different planet they do these transitions where you have fog like and this is a really bizarre thing to have like white fog roll across the screen that's already white because it's shot on like a white soundstage in black and white but you go to these scene transitions where there's fog that takes over the screen all of a sudden you can't say anything, see anything. And then it clears and you're at a totally different angle in a totally different place. And it just all creates this really sort of dreamy, like uh, incoherent, almost like ambiguous kind of craziness. And it is the perfect parallel to what's happening in the mind of uh, Macbeth. And that's why Kirk, the decision that you talked about with the witches is such a great choice because it's the first, it's really the first thing that we see. And she's the first person that we hear in the show. Um, right. right when the movie starts, you hear her dialogue and then you see Macbeth and Banquo encounter the witches where they receive the prophecy. And um, when that happens, you have already had some transitions. You see the beautiful uh, set it's it's shot in a different aspect ratio than most films. It's shot in one thirty seven over one, which is the uh, Academy aspect ratio. It's thirty five millimeter frame um, or film that it's shot on. All of that, all of that, and so much more combines together to give you this really transcendent experience. You feel like you are in a different place, in a different world. You feel like you have been sucked into 
a Shakespearean world because they talk in a way that nobody has ever really talked. And uh, the show is is so beautiful and 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 everything's swirling. It's dizzying almost in a way, but in a way that really helps transform you into a different place. So um, all of that together, that dreamscape that he creates through all of those very intricate details are what steals the show and what makes this a really very interesting um, adaptation and one that after so many film adaptations have been created is, is worthwhile and worth merit on its own and, and warrants its creation. So that for me is my showstopper. If that makes any sense. <laughs> it was beautiful. It made perfect sense. Thanks Kirk. Let's talk about the other side of it uh, and any notes we have for director Joel Cohen on his first solo adventure here. This one's hard for me. Um, I love you, Denzel. This is not a critique to you. I guess it is. Uh-oh, 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 uh-oh. <laughs> I think Denzel did a fine job. And I think to get the general public to come watch a, a Shakespearean film, you need a big name. I think Denzel could have benefited for more direction because we just didn't get full Denzel. We didn't get his full potential. His performance um, for me was there was more, there was more that was left on the table that could have, that we could have been given. And I think the only reason that is, is because Denzel is someone who likes to move. And the bigger problem with this movie is that the momentum of this movie, it never really gets there. The stakes are so high. We have the ruler of Scotland. He's got all of these different people who he, um, who he oversees and he rules and he nominates and he appoints one being Mr. Macbeth, Mr. Macbeth. (laughs) who he appoints to, to, to being a Thane, a nobleman uh, who's, who's above uh, several other um, uh, of, of the likes of an Earl, I believe is, is what, is what I read, um, which is pretty high up there in the monarchy. What we fail to ever get is the momentum of this movie, the momentum of this play. It rises and falls and rises and falls and rises and falls and rises and falls. It never climbs and soars up to the top because of that, it's very, um, it's very disruptive uh, because you have to follow the rhythm of the language. And I felt like with some of those scene changes, they were disrupting that rhythm to set their own pace to kind of guide the audience when they should have been watching Francis McDormand <laughs> and watch the language control the story and, and let it lead you into the next scene while those transitions were exquisite while they were just absolutely phenomenal to, to see on screen. It made the story suffer and lost the momentum. I mean, the first half of this was faster than the last and we have, just brutal, brutal murders and giant fight scenes that we should see big war scenes that never, that never really came about, which is a choice. And for me, the momentum just never got there and it, it, it dragged the movie down. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I mean, the, it, there was a choice 
to your point, Kirk, there was a choice made to scale this way down. You know, I think looking at like the trailer for the 2015 Macbeth with, with, uh, Fassbender and, and Cotillard, uh, that looks like the big epic Macbeth, you know, like that looks like the big cinematic, like, um, you know, war movie effectively that, that you think of whenever you think of the story of Macbeth. And I think that for me is part of my reason, like my director's shoes is like this. I love the way this movie looks and the way that it feels and the way, like I thoroughly enjoyed watching it, but I'm left at the end going, this is more akin to a stage performance than it is to a cinema. And, and, and the question becomes like, even though cinematically, I love a lot of the choices artfully. I think they're beautiful, but I'm like, it's not that big of a increase over the stage performance to justify those choices. It's almost like, let's make a movie that's, that's closer to a stage show than it is to like a big cinematic production. Um, and I struggle so hard with this because I'm, I'm like, I like the scale and the way that they did it. I mean, they did, they made something that is very creative and very like, I don't think many people would have come up with the way that they did this. And they created an environment that was just totally um, its own. And, and that's great. But to your point, Kirk, I think it was scaled down so much to the point where you go, cinema is about scale. You know, if you're going to adapt something from, if you're going to, in, in my opinion, if you're going to adapt something from a stage show or, or a play to the, to film, it's got to be bigger. Like that's the reason you do it. Otherwise I think, you know, the stage show does its job and accomplishes that on a smaller scale. Um, so yeah, like whenever they're storming Dunsinane and it just doesn't feel like they're storming Dunsinane, you know, <laughs> like it doesn't feel like there is a, is a battle waging on other than the, the battle that ultimately goes down between Macduff and Macbeth. But, you know, for me, it doesn't take that much away because I can look at it and go, I see why they're doing this and the effect that they're trying to get to. And so I'm okay with the trade-off, but I get not being okay with the trade-off, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I think it does come back to that scale. The other thing that I will say is that Shakespeare is just, I don't know, and, and this might just be personal preference. Like, I just don't know that it works that well for film in general because I just find it, in a move, when I watch a movie, I'm focusing on so much stuff other than the dialogue that if I have to spend all my time, you know, like trying to understand the minutia of the dialogue, it's going to be a really not fun experience for me on the first viewing. Luckily, I had a general idea of kind of what happens in this story, but like, if this is your first time having any experience with it, I just I think that it's hard. I think that it works better as a as a play where you're more you focus more on the dialogue than you do to what's happening on the stage. In my opinion, whenever I watch a play, whereas a movie, I focus more on everything that's happening in the scene and all of the production and everything. Um, so it's just, it's a tough transition, but um, well, I'll share the rest of my thoughts for final thoughts and scores. So Kirk, let's transition into that. Um, give final thoughts and scores on the tragedy of Macbeth. I like that. I also feel that this, is it gets a disservice going straight to a streaming service because it is a big spectacle. Uh, The film itself, the entire production uh, that Mr. Joel Cohen has put on and to see that reduced to my 55 inch television screen. (laughs) 
it's pretty it's pretty big um instead of you know the what i don't know what's the standard size of a movie theater screen you know 30 feet i don't know yeah (laughs) <laughs> it's not 30 feet, but to, to not be able to see that at that scale, we don't get the full effect. We, we, we really don't. Um, that said, you still should be able to be able to make that transition just with the storytelling, because at its core, you must tell the story. The story comes first. I have to give this movie not a terrible score. No, but I have to give it a score that reflects that I was getting pretty tired near the biggest moments of the movie. I was dozing off like, ooh, hey Siri, rewind um, 35 seconds, please. My score for The Tragedy of Macbeth is 7.9 out of 10 kernels. 7.9. All right. Good score, Kirk. Uh, Yeah, I've said most of what I want to say, but here's where I'll go with it is that I feel like this is a very cohesive project. It's very clear what Joel Cohen was trying to do. I think he got the desired effect, and I think it's effective. I think it's an effective effect. <laughs> you know, I think it really does its job and creates this world that he was intending to create with his team. And I think the actors all brought it and helped create this world. And I really did feel sucked into the work as I was watching it, um, which is where I want to go. I want to be transported into a film whenever I watch it. Um, I think that the scale thing was a trade-off. And I think that Joel Cohen knew that going in into it and, and made that choice. And I think that, uh, like while I would love to feel more of the, you know, thump, thump, thump as the, of the heart as the movie scales up, like I enjoyed the spectacle so much that I didn't really miss it. You know, I, I, I knew how it was going to end and I enjoyed the spectacle of the film and, and the, the artful approach a little bit more. Um, so for me, I felt, I felt like this was super enjoyable and, um, I'm at peace with the trade-offs that <laughs> were made. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of the better films that I s- have seen so far this year, and I've watched a lot in 2022 so far, but um, my score's in the nines. I'm giving it a 9.2 out of 10 for Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, um, and we'll see what happens with the award season. But for my money, this is, you know, this is my kind of thing. I, I just really felt like it, if if you can if you can be super detail oriented and like go out to achieve an effect and deliver it, it was kind of like my thoughts on the power of the dog. Like if you just go out there and you do what you need to do, I'm almost okay with a little bit of an entertainment trade off. As long as I understand what the objective was and it's clear, but it's, it's case by case. Like this is not a exact science by any means, but, I liked it. And it seems like you liked it, Kirk, too. Just, I did. Um, you know, both good scores. So it's a good one. If you've seen The Tragedy of Macbeth, talk to us about it. Let us know your thoughts on this. Do you think, you know, are you like, this is this artsy-fartsy stuff's not for me. I, I can't dig it. Um, were you a Francis McDormand hater and now you have been changed forever <laughs> like Kirk? I mean, the, the options I will now be a Francis McDormand evangelist. <laughs> Either that or you're going to be like, this is the mulligan, you know, like now I go back to my ways of hating Francis McDormand. But, um, 
Oh man, that's hilarious. That was floored that you chose her, but I I love it. I love it nonetheless. Um, That's the tragedy of Macbeth. Thank you guys so much for listening and watching. Don't forget, you can always connect with us on social media. Kirk and I are both on the social platform Letterboxd. You can see what we're watching and what we think of it on that platform in somewhat real time. I mean, I log my stuff as I watch it. I don't always review it right away because that takes some thought, but I do uh, log it as I watch it. Kirk does the same, so feel free to follow us there. Feel free to connect with us on Discord. But until next time, we'll have a whole new batch of episodes cooked up for you next week. But for now, we'll leave you with thanking our executive producer, Ryan Spriggs, and the band Rhetoric, who creates our original music. Catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, etc. And we will see you guys next time. See ya. See ya.